0: Hey, you're listening to the world-famous God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio.
2: I continue to be Bill Swirla. Do I, do I sound a little funny, Bill? You, you always sound funny. Why do you ask?
0: Well, because last time we recorded, you gave me your cold, and yeah. I'm, I'm still on the back end of that.
2: You know, I didn't know that you could transmit viruses over brick links, but apparently you can. So twenty
0: five hundred miles. We need to you, pra-
2: we need to practice safe podcasting here. You you,
0: know, you breathed into the microphone. Maybe I should put a plastic bag over the microphone next time.
2: People worry about the individual cups. They really should be worried about podcast microphones. <laughs> I think it's a actually you know those those foam those those foam things that that keep you from popping. Yeah, yeah, the, you know, the windscreens. Those are just like a breeding ground for, oh, yeah. you know. It's yeah, just, they're
0: Petri dishes.
2: We have a, a special guest uh, on this episode 349. Uh, we've had her on before. Her name is Heather Choate Davis, author, lecturer, um, free thinker, free spirit. That sounds dangerous. Oh, Wow. Yeah, well, there she is, and and uh, I'm and, impressed. Yeah, and and Heather, welcome back to the GW.
1: I am glad to be back, gentlemen. Thanks for having me.
2: <laughs> the last time that you were with us, we talked about one of your several books, uh, namely Elijah and the SAT, where you were talking about uh, kind of performance parenting. Yeah. Right. And uh, before we get started, by way of introduction, I, I did kind of screenshot a listing of all of your books, and I thought it might be uh, useful for our listeners if they want to look Thank up your you books. For that. So, uh, in, yeah. the, in the order that they appear on the tab on your website, which is heatherchoatedavis.com, that choate is spelled C H O A T E, and just run it all together, heatherchoatdavis.com, and you get kind of the full effect right that's like everything that's you a little
1: bit of all the things that i do i do a lot of different things so Variety of calls.
2: Yes. So, he, but here are your books in the order in which they appear on the tab: Baptism by Fire, which I understand is your personal story of your coming to faith in Christ. Yep. Uh, the Pitcher's Mom, Elijah. That is
1: my only fictional work, and I've got to say it's kind of funny. It it sells better than any of my other books. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Maybe your your readers are trying to tell you something there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'd right. rather read about baseball than God, but, you know, God's in there.
2: Exactly. Well, I was wondering about So that's a fictional work. That's good. Elijah and the SAT, we, we've talked about the last time we were there, Loaded Words. Yes. That was the first book of yours that I read, was Loaded Words, where you, you are unpacking um, some of the Lutheran jargon, if you will, and translating it into street talk, really, things that, that people could understand. Is that, that fair?
1: Yeah, that was my first co-authored book. That one and then later Sola I wrote with Leanne Luckinger, who is a brilliant thinker, and we met in the master's program at Concordia, Irvine, and became kind of kindred spirits and soulmates in much the same way you guys have a certain kind of special partnership and you sense that you're supposed to do work together. We feel that we've been called to do a certain <laughs> kind of communication, theological work together. And so those two books are the fruit of that partnership.
2: Uh, were you describing Craig and me?
1: Yeah, yeah. This is yes.
2: This is a hate I mean, hate relationship. This, this is this is a relationship that's mostly a long simmering hatred punctuated by occasional moments of friendship. That's okay, right. You
1: know what that's, okay, in the screenplay world in Hollywood, that's called a meet cute. Notice how in any of those romantic comedies, people who are destined to be together usually can't stand each other at first. Oh. So that's what that's called.
2: Uh Craig, we have a destiny. I knew it. I knew it. I just Danny Craig. There we are. So um And then... uh... I think this is your 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 master's thesis or the extension of a man turned in on himself, the yep. incurvatus est of Luther and the Reformation, right?
1: Yes, which you also completely lost. And when I went back to reclaim it and do the deep dive on the research, I found out that everything that Lutheran scholars today thought they knew about it was completely wrong. And that's why I've been able to like dust it off and hand it back to people and connect the dots to contemporary issues. And it's been a real gift. And I I speak now mostly to pastors at seminaries. Dale Meyer, uh, you know, at Concordia St. Louis has just become a complete devotee of this book and really sp- talking it up at pastors' conferences and stuff. It's very helpful for messaging, in the you know, to people in the pews, to connecting some dots in a way that has relevance.
2: So you you, you kind of have—you've re you, you've dug out of the archives of the Reformation this, this insight of Luther that— Original sin, sin, the nature of sin is the is the heart turned inward, man curved inward on himself. Right. And, and right. kind of getting back to what does this mean? How does this look today? The, you know, we may have to have you back on to talk about that. I, you know, I think another lost concept is the semel. That's that's my hobby horse is I know it is Is that the the Christian, the baptized believer in Christ has this dual identity of being in Adam and in Christ simultaneously sinner and saint. So those may be related. Then there's a little devotional book. uh, Happy are those I've read that one. Uh, that's that to me strikes me as a, it's a little Eugene Peterson esque of. Uh, you no, know, I
1: love that little book. That was born out of a month of Lexio Divina on the first psalm, and I just thought I was having some prayer time, but I just was getting so much wonderful content, and I really wanted something. Um, for young people and i was thinking more you know 20s early 30s but then i end up speaking to high schoolers even middle schoolers college students and that's become something that people have been giving away like when the graduates go off or whatever to put in their back pocket because what what we don't realize is that young people don't even have files in their brains anymore for the words and concepts that they would hear in church or coming from scripture they don't exist so taking something like this and talking about ideas of happiness and paths and decisions without using any scripture except obviously the first psalm as a springboard for those discussions which is kind of like a you know having a cup of coffee discussion very light reading i mean Lofty and dense in terms of being thought-provoking, but very simple, very light on the eye, light on the page, where you could just grab a page or two and sit down and go, oh, oh, oh. And that's opened a lot of conversations for me with young people.
2: Yeah, we when I read it, it reminded me of uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, what he calls devotional exegesis, where you know you're not you're not doing the technical stuff, whether you're aware of it, but but it's really it's prayerful and it's 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 using the language in the form of in this case psalm one to kind of pray your way out into the world it's good then your last one is sola which (laughs) with an exclamation point sola
1: leanne and i wrote that together we were asked to speak at in st louis at the 500th anniversary theological symposium which is like a big deal, of course, that we were asked to speak there, and we knew that everybody else who was going to be speaking there had like nine PhDs and you know had just been born in Wittenberg or wherever, and so here we were going to come along with our thing, I thought, I don't want to spend all year working on some talk, hour-long talk, and we know we're going to put a ton of work into it so that it's great, and then it's over, so let's write a book while we're doing it, and then we'll have the deliverable and then all the content, and it's interesting that you're bringing that last, because that almost becomes... One small piece in where we lost the priesthood of all believers. As we were researching this, you know, we all talk about in the Lutheran world oh, the solas, the solas, that's the foundation, who we are, the three solas, you know, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's actually not true. That phrase was a, like a branding phrase that came out of a theological essay at the 400th year anniversary, where he decided to kind of codify everything because it seems simple. And once you get something that's catchy, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, well, then what falls off the table? Priests of all believers are just a big kind of clunky stepchild, right? So that gets lopped off, and it doesn't get moved forward. But the original, you know, uh, three-legged stool of the Reformation was saved by grace through faith alone. That was one. It was one. It wasn't broken into two parts. Scripture alone was two, and priesthood of all believers was three. Those were the foundations. And I'm not saying it just got lost because of a little branding piece in an essay, but it's a piece of it. You know, what we what moves forward is what's catchy, what's easy. And that is one small part.
2: Well, the, the solas fit nicely on a Reformation banner. So yeah. that, that's, that's, that's really why that works that way. I've never been like a huge fan. I know the solas are kind of shorthand, Reformation is shorthand, but I've always felt that they've kind of, they're a little too shorthand. <laughs> and you just <laughs> described one of the things that's lost. Uh, there's a lot of the Reformation uh, that gets kind of lost with a simplistic notion of just you know grace alone, faith alone, scriptural, alone. Christ alone. Often gets lost in that too, because that's the center that makes the whole thing work, and we forget right. that too. You know the thing about priesthood of believers. Um, you know I, I'll, I'll be I'll I'll be honest with you. When I was at the seminary, I was taught and led to believe that this was really not a major component of doctrine. I, I, I specifically recall the following statements. One, it only appears uh, in a couple of places in the Scriptures, namely in the Revelation, the opening of the Revelation, and in First Peter chapter 2. And, um, sec- and secondly, that it only appears once in, in the Confessions, and that's in Melanchthon's treatise on the power and the primacy of the Pope, where he makes the argument that because the church has the priesthood, it must also have the ministry and the right to call. So it's really in the context of the office of the ministry. So I was told that this wasn't really an important thing, and and I'm I'm starting to see that that's a, that's a very distorted view, and and we're we're losing something when we look at it that way.
1: Yeah, and that's mm, distorted as a as a gracious word. There Uh, can I read you something here? This is from Luther's work. So when we say, "Oh, there's only one place," (laughs) you know, let's listen to it. In
2: the in the Confessions, Heather, not in Luther. I'm not saying in in Luther. It's all over the place. And and I agree with you that the priesthood of believers is is a it's a pillar of the Reformation. In fact, I would argue that his work on the freedom of the Christian or the liberty of the Christian man which is one of the three great Reformation works, is all about this topic, but it doesn't enter into the confessions that strongly. That's all.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that, that would be something to spend some time thinking about, I imagine, because so much of the confessions are polemic, and it wasn't something that they were battling.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think when people hear priesthood, priest, what do they think of? Catholic. Well, and they also think minister. They think the guy in the robes and the and the thing. Yeah, so they're yeah, they're thinking yeah. they're thinking the guy up front, which is exactly not the Lutheran concept.
1: Well, it's the way the Lutheran concept concept is lived out today, and that's why we've got such a hard time now uh, trying to reinvigorate and revitalize the church. And this concept, I believe, this lost doctrine, that is so truly Lutheran, um, is key to that.
0: I, I think it's really interesting, Heather, that you pointed out it wasn't something that they were really dealing with at the time, because you had that priestly class, and and everybody kind of bowed before the priests and the bishops and everyone else, and uh, they they were discouraged, and even until more recent times in the Roman Catholic churches and others, people were discouraged from actually learning and knowing the Bible in a lot of ways. Just just look to the priest; he'll tell you; he'll he'll figure yeah. it out for you. And, uh, you know, with Luther, and as you were talking about the solas, you know, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and that emphasis on the Bible and that uh, Luther put the Bible in the common vernacular of the German people and everything else, I, I think we start to see a turn. And of course, you also see abuses on the other side where pastors and clergy are no longer even necessary. So get rid of them altogether. You end up with the Quakers and that sort of thing. But uh, it's interesting that you were pointing out that wasn't even really a, a main topic at the time. It's become more so in the last 500 years.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, documents are written and movements are started to address specific problems in a given time and a given era. So even if all of the theological work in the confessions is masterful and orthodox and a gift, um, there's no way that it can perfectly address everything that we're dealing with now. Like you just said, it wasn't then. It wasn't an issue. How we looked at the confessions, we don't see much in there about priesthood of all believers, but we need to reassert it. So we're going to need to go to Luther's teachings on it, which are just. Pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. We're going to go to scripture on it. We've got a long narrative. You can systematically start it all the way, you know, in Exodus, all the way through. It's not just First Peter. And talking about Abraham and, you know, to be a blessing and, and bringing in the Barak and the cistern language and the water being dispersed and, you know, all of that. So there's a lot of work that can be done. Um, in this systematically.
2: Well, I'd, I'd even go back go back further into my favorite chapters of the Bible, and that is Genesis. You know that's, that's uh, you know if, if, if the Bible only had like three chapters, I take Genesis 1 to three, you know me. But, but even there, the element of priesthood is there without saying it. That man, as male and female, so generic mankind, humanity, is is being image of God in Genesis one, is to be priest because that's what a priest does. The priest images God uh, before the creation in Genesis one. And in Genesis two, Adam and Eve are priests of a garden. they're They're given to tend this garden, which is a sacred space. It's a holy and ordered space in the wilderness. And so so Adam, is priest. And so, in fact, Robert Capon has a book entitled The Priesthood of Adam. I, I think the, the actual title of the book is, it's not Third Peacock from the Left, that's The Odyssey. Oh, I forgot the name of it, but the subtitle is The Priesthood of Adam. And so if you're going to talk priesthood and the dignity of humanity and the image a man in the image of God, I think you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1.
1: Now, I think you're right, and you know, when you just said that, just as you were describing them in the garden, that the word that came, or the term that came to mind was steward, that they were asked to be good stewards of their little patch of land, of their mission field, of their vocation, of their gifts.
2: Well, and And, even even more, they were stewards of the mysteries, because the mysteries were the two trees in the center of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowing good and evil, and they had a stewardship, part of which part of which was was don't eat <laughs> don't eat of that one <laughs> but but that's you know isn't isn't that what priesthood is about it's about stewardship of the holy things and and mm-hmm. so they were they were stewards of the holy things that kind of gives you a different take on sin then because they became faithless priests you see they they <laughs> and and so in doing so what happens they were thrown out of the temple that is, they're cast out of the garden into the wilderness, losing access to the holy of holies, and so that in the the in due time God reestablishes that through the, the, Israel, through Christ, through the Church.
0: The book you're trying to think of is an offering of uncles. An offering I, of uncles. I know that because it's sitting right in front of me on my desk, yes. which is
2: weird. That is but... a cool book, way <laughs> overlooked in the in the Capon canon. It is canon. It's very good. Hey Heather, you had a you had a Luther quote you wanted to toss out in the conversation. What was it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll share that with you. So and I think people would be surprised. He says, there is no other word of God than that which is given all Christians to proclaim. There is no other baptism than the one which any Christian can bestow. There is no other remembrance of the Lord's Supper than that which any Christian can observe and which Christ has instituted. There is no other kind of sin than that which any Christian can bind or loose. There is no other sacrifice than of the body of every Christian. No one but a Christian can pray. No one but a Christian may judge of doctrine. These make the priestly and royal office.
2: Let me guess where that comes from. That comes from Luther's 1523 letter to the Senate at Prague. It's, it's titled in English on the ministry of the church or something like that, but it's, it's his 1523 writing to the Prague Senate. Am I correct?
1: I can't confirm that because this is some of the expanded work that Leanne did when we went wow. to Oklahoma. She can spend all day on her logos going through Luther's works, and she's got citations here from 30, 31, 40, and then WA, 6, and 8. I just try and, like, stay in the real world and draw the connections. Yeah. I, so that it, it, was a quote she shared. And, you know, every single pastor in the room, the jaws drop. Like, they— and you like you said when you were at Fort Wayne, you don't hear we're, no one's reminding you of this language if pastors, talking about that. If
2: pastors draws jaws drop when they hear that quote, I, I kind of wonder what class they skipped. I mean, that that's <laughs> that is boilerplate. Everybody knows that. In fact, that, that's that was one of CFW Walther's favorite, favorite works. He cites it over and over and over again, this 1523 letter cuz Luther's trying to deal with the fact what do you do when the bishops won't ordain, you know, pastors for you. Right. And the first thing he's got to assure the people is that you are the priesthood of of Christ. You have all the gifts of Christ. The only thing lacking is to get somebody there to administer them for you. So get together and do it is what he says to them, which is pretty radical, you know, but yeah. but but that's that's where, that's where the priesthood of believers goes. Um Before we forget, before we forget, you know the CTCR, which, uh, if you're playing the home game, stands for the Commission on Theology and Church Relations, which is our uh, kind of panel of uh, theologians, lay clergy, professors, whatnot, that that kind of wrestle through some things and. Uh, write papers that that uh, instruct and edify the church, but they've just recently come out with a uh, a, a document on the priesthood of believers, the royal priesthood, which is a, that's a good name for it. That's a First Peter two name, and it's really a, it's really a very comprehensive work. It does all the the heavy theological lifting, history, scripture, confessions, uh, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and then it has some some summary things at the end, uh, kind of a what does this mean section today, which is I think really where we want to go with this is yes. What do you, today? You keep talking about you know yeah you know Luther 1523 sent to Prague, really nice. We're not in Prague. It's not 1523. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what does this mean? What, you know? What does this mean for us today as the church as the body of Christ?
1: All right, so this is what I want to say, and I think it's really important. And Craig, I don't know if you heard this in the one talk you you listened to, but it's something that I always speak of. Where do we lose it? If this is so foundational, if this is what Mm. Luther was all about, if this is key to who we are, why does nobody know that? Nobody's heard of this. It's certainly not alive in our churches. And I believe strongly that it's through a mutual pact of sin. And sin on the part of pastors who stop teaching it, Perhaps because they're not inclined to want to um, say that we're all equal uh, and sin on the part of people in the pews who don't really want to know that they have anything more to do than to show up, put some money on the plate, bring something to the potluck, and feel blessed. Done. And so you have maybe hubris and pride, maybe sloth, you know, um, on, the, on both sides, and together that's worked really nicely. To create a very pastor-centric church, and I do believe that some of the the teaching, and you talked about maybe some distortions in the teaching, contribute to that. You know, when we were at the um, at the district convention this year, uh, you know, a pastor came to the mic to say something that had to do. With, it was one of the motions about increasing the amount of commissioned uh, workers' votes, right? And, and they're always trying to get that number to balance between lay and pastor and commission, and I'm sure it's at every convention, every year, everywhere, and it'll never be resolved. But what he said to me that just hit me, and I was like, there it is. That's the problem. He came to the mic, and he said very clearly as if it was like ground zero, bedrock truth, there are proclaimers And there are hearers. Hmm. And the fact that he believed that with such certainty means that in his church it would be impossible for the priesthood of all believers to exist. Because the priesthood, the royal priesthood, by its very nature, is calling each one of us to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when we teach and train our pastors to believe that there is a distinction between proclaimers and hearers. In other words, pastors are this special breed. And I'm not trying to say anything to minimize the office of the public ministry, but that mentality, like we, we know how to speak about God and you receive, then instead all movement of the Holy Spirit in and through the church and out into the community is can't happen.
2: Yeah, you know, I I think I heard the same comment and and I think I think it's an unfortunate choice of words because because what Luther said, what Lutherans have said, what our confessions say, what Walther affirmed is that the church as it's ordered consists of those who preach and those who hear. And and that's this wasn't to create a class, but it was to basically say this that if the church is going to speak the church must first listen. If we're going to have something to say to our neighbor, we first have to hear what God says to us, right? Or the mm-hmm. way I like to put it, if you're going to speak, the first thing you do, the first action before there is a speaking is you have to inhale, <laughs> mm. you know? And, and so, so before we can exhale the word of God, we have to inhale the word of God. And so God has ordered it that in the church, he's, he's made sure made sure by virtue of office that his voice is heard, uh, and that his word is preached and it is heard. So that's I think that's what he was saying. But I, I get your 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 pushback against that and I, I totally affirm the problem is there's it's one thing to say it's my vocation as a pastor to preach the word in church. It's another thing to say I'm the only authorized proclaimer of the word, no matter what. <laughs> See, and that's where the real problem. I don't think we're equipping our people to be priests.
0: You, you know, uh, Bill and and. It, this is Heather. I'm sorry. Uh, this wait, is something wait, that wait, wait,
2: how, Bill? Oh, Heather. I'm sorry. How do you get that confusion in your <laughs> mind, Craig? Because
0: my mind is foggy from your disease <laughs> what, that you gave me. What
2: drugs are you on in this episode?
0: I wanted to say Davis. It's just one of those things. Anyway, <laughs> okay,
1: I'll respond to anything.
0: <laughs> uh, not too long ago, I was speaking on the sheep and the goats. And, and when the sheep are welcomed in, and, and Jesus basically says, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And, and the sheep all say, when did I do that? I, I said, I, I fear that in the church today, it, the answer isn't, when did I do that? But we paid pastor to do that, so we don't need to. <laughs>
1: well, no, I think you're right. But why do they think that? Because they were trained to think that. That's why said, it's, That's a it's a yes. little tightly knit ball here. And now we've got a dying church, and a dying church body, and its is it even fair to go to people in their 60s and 70s and 80s and say, hey, get out there, get out there now and be a pre-scooby be missional. It's like, come on, man, you're changing the game on me. But it does mean that we need to start teaching this. And part of the teaching is, number one, do we believe it? Are, are you as pastors looking at your people and saying, tell me what what's going on in your life? Where has God placed you? Where might there be some exciting opportunities for you to make the Word of God alive? you know, in your setting, and actually thinking that that is a beautiful thing to do. Um, You know, when I was a president of a congregation for a period of time, I started each meeting by asking people to share some of those stories where they felt that they were being used in conversation or a moment that they could give a word. And I thought it was so life-giving and so affirming and so, Mm. like, just treasure – and then like three of the guys in the back row who are elders with their arms full, like, wow, well, I bet you'll never waste our time with that kind of thing again. I'm like, what is huh. wrong with you? Can you not just see what was just given? So there's a big disconnect um, in that. And I think the other piece is people don't actually know the essence of the faith. And so they don't right. have confidence. And that's why they say, well, go talk to the pastor or you should come to church. And that was my part. And, and one of the reasons we wrote Loaded Words and wrote Sola was to say, okay, can you just grab hold of a couple of core truths about the living God and put them in your pocket, and then you are going to be able to interact in a way that is going to pass some of that freedom. As I have received, so I pass on to you in a way that is gracious and, and true to his word. And Amen. I just don't think they know. You've got a lot of people who took confirmation class at 12, and other than showing up for Bible study and just, you know, hearing what a verse means, they haven't really grown in any larger understanding and certainly not an understanding of how do you how do you combat that in a world that no longer sees this as an agreed on truth.
0: Right? You know, it, it, it's interesting. You, you you point out that the older folks, you know, you can't just switch gears like this. I think in my own congregation, majority retired people But I opened up the confirmation class to the whole congregation. I thought maybe two or three people would show up, five kids. And I I have 20 to 30 people every week showing up for confirmation. These are people with time. And these are people with friends who go back 50 years in this congregation, 60, 70 years in this congregation. And they have friends who are shut-ins. They have friends that are going in and out of the hospital and so forth and so on. You know, these are people with time, and they're still mobile and what a wonderful opportunity for them to share in this royal priesthood uh, of that's visiting. Awesome. You know, it's tremendous. Uh, but, you know, we're working on on getting people motivated to do this. And I, I think that age doesn't need to be a barrier. If you're immobile, that's one thing. But age is, you know, it's not a problem anymore.
2: I, I think even mobility is not an issue. I, I think of a woman in my congregation named Charlotte. She's since died to be with the Lord. But, but she... Uh, did not have a lot of mobility. She's in her nineties, um, but um, she very she had a very strong sense of priesthood and calling. Mm. And and what she did, she was she was first of all, she was a woman of prayer. You mm, always knew yeah. Charlotte was praying for you she'd tell you that and, and secondly, she was a woman with really good penmanship who liked to send <laughs> cards. She was old school you know she had that, that great handwriting that they used to have when you had to learn cursive writing and and, and it, was a, it was like almost like calligraphy it was a discipline but she would write the most beautiful notes and and she would collect cards that she would send at the right moment and and all of us in our congregation had been recipients of one of charlotte's notes or cards and so even though she was immobile and you knew that these 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 letters or these notes were written with prayer and 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 i had a real strong sense of priestliness about this woman that, that she she really saw this as as her work of love her service to neighbor even though she couldn't Be there physically all the time, and you know she had limitations, but that didn't limit her pen and her prayers. And so, you know, I think it's just whatever whatever circumstance the Lord gives you, that's where you serve as priest. And 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 I think this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And um, I I think we've all pastors, and you know, pastors lose the sense of this too. We think we're pastors, we're priests. Yeah, when, when, when I write a sermon or teach a class, that's my priesthood. It's my job and vocation as pastor to do that, but it's more than that. That's a priestly sacrifice. Now, it's, it's, it's of the same sort as when the plumber plums a <laughs> faucet or you know an electrician wires a, a, a circuit breaker box or something, but it's, it's service to neighbor. And, and I think we, we've lost the dignity of that because, because I think with priesthood of believers comes the dignity of humanity, the dignity of human work. Um, uh, dignity is the thing that I see operative behind priesthood. It's our mm. dignity before God, our status before God. We have been made priests to God in the priesthood of Jesus Christ and therefore, we image Christ to the world as His priests, and, and I don't mean pastors; I mean baptized believers. Right? That—that's and that's—that's that's what I, I don't think we articulate that enough.
1: You know, I want that was really, really beautiful. Thank you. And I want to just loop back to two things that you said, and, and one is, I thank you for your both good examples of older members having you know, priestly calls. I didn't in any way mean to minimize it. I, I have compassion. For them, we have so many churches filled with predominantly older members, and they're shrinking, and they feel scared, and they're concerned, and then everyone's, you know, sending them messages of get out there and be missional, and it feels like not a fair thing to do to them without having that kind of training and grooming. And so I, I have compassion for that shift, and you're reminding me that there's a lot more doing it than we may believe. So that's that's good. And then the other thing I wanted to say was that this connection of prayer, and and Bill, you and I have talked about this a lot. T- to me, it, it all is grounded in prayer. It's the, like you said, the inhale before the exhale. And prayer for me is certainly the inhale. And I think that to know who God has called you to be and how he wants you to live, you need to spend time not just in his word, but in his presence in prayer. And I'm not sure that we've done a great job of teaching people to pray other than the talking prayers, you know, say these prayers, but not so much the listening prayers. And I know that in the past there people have some skepticism about that. No, oh, that's contemplative. and oh, that's too mysterious or that's whatever. But, you know, it's kind of all over the Bible, right? I mean, my sheep hear my voice. Well, okay, when are we stopping to listen for his voice? And when we are making that part of the foundation of our lives to pray and through his word, and have the silence after his word that he may speak, whether it's in a you know a direct word or just a slightly a new insight, a shift in thinking, a a, a change of heart, a tiny you know, these baby steps that happen as we grow into different calls throughout our life and, and vocation. And Craig, you mentioned earlier like the relationship between priesthood of all believers and vocation, and I think that's what it is. You know, our priestly call is our vocation, uh, and it's change throughout a lifetime.
2: Uh, you know you know where I see the priesthood of believers at work, like it just kind of one of those in front of my face moments is is when you hear the stories in the hospital, and these are the late night stories, so this is after everybody's gone, and the patients are there, and there's always this this Christian nurse, male or female, whatever, or orderly or somebody in the hospital staff, and they're going around and there's a there's a patient who's troubled or maybe in pain or just you know just 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 suffering in some way. And it's, it's, it's this person whose vocation is nurse or orderly or something like that who takes the hand of the patient and prays with them mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. This is, you know, the, the pastors are sleeping. The, the, the pastoral staff at the hospital has gone home for the day. Um, but it's, it, it, But God has his, his agents, his secret agents, his covert operations all over the place, and they emerge at these, these moments, you know, and, and to me, that is like the distilled essence of the priesthood of believers at work, scattered throughout the world. So here this person needs prayer at one in the morning, and, and God has arranged it for this believing nurse to be there, and and to to be confident and and to, to you know to to know how to pray to know how to intercede, yeah. and and to do that as as an, a priestly act for somebody else, and uh, I I really think that that prayer is probably the sort of number one activity of what a priest does. I, I I'm thinking back to my my mentor in the faith, one of my one of the truly influential people in my my. Uh, formation as a pastor, was uh, Pastor Kenneth Corby. And Corby uh, wrote an extensive, not a dissertation, but he wrote an extensive uh, paper that he delivered to some district conference somewhere on the priesthood of believers. But it distills down to three things. He says, what does a priest do? A priest speaks to God on behalf of his neighbor. That's prayer. He intercedes. Uh, second, a priest teaches. He speaks to his neighbor on behalf of God. And then third, a priest blesses. He blesses the neighbor in vocation. You know?
1: Beautiful, beautiful. And,
2: and, and I think you know, if we could kind of redefine our life, our vocation, no matter what it is, wife, you know, uh, husband, mother, father, worker, anything, to define it and to lens it through priesthood, And that I I think we'd see our Christian life a little bit different, don't you?
1: Well, you know, the other piece of that, I mean, every time you talk, I get like five other ideas because it's so rich, um, is, you know, we've talked about the institutional church and the challenges of that. And we've got a model that's very institutional now. We've got a mindset that's institutional, a church's walls, a church is my church, come to my church, we need to support our church, we need to do the thing, come to the activity of this church, where the activity of the royal priesthood is not institutional. Um, it is you know, vocational, it is providential, it is contextual, it is communal in other settings. And like you're saying, you're representing God in the world in a variety of ways. You are not trying to make someone into a certain denomination or belief system or sign them up and you know, so that you can add their name on the list of the spreadsheet that counts you know, new baptisms or new beliefs. That may all happen. That may happen through you. It may happen somewhere else. But that's not the point in those interactions. Um, and so I think that those two things are a little bit tension.
2: So, are you saying that the institutionalization, which is to me that's a dirty word. Whenever, whenever I use that word, there's always some negative spin to it. But, <laughs> but the, but is there any other way to
1: use it? Uh,
2: well, you know, it's inevitable. Where two or three are gathered, there will be an institution. But can we manage it? But is 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 the, that institutionalized view of the church is that getting in the way of the priesthood of believers? Is that inhibiting the priesthood?
1: I totally think it is. I mean, one of the things I, I said in this talk I give on resurrecting the priest of all believers, or maybe this was a different one, but anyhow I, I make the point that good church people, you know, try to support the church by going to all the activities and you know, and they're there at the church three tights three nights a week in addition to Sunday, this and I said, Stop. Stop doing that. Stop scheduling so many things and stop committing so many nights to being at church, and start asking God what you should be doing on those nights to be His voice and face and hands somewhere in your real life, not yeah. <laughs> just in there. See, and it's a radical shift.
2: Kenneth Corby is smiling down upon you as you say that because because I remember him saying in that same context of you know priests uh, pray and they they teach and they bless. Uh, he would talk as a, as an experienced pastor. He talked about those people, for whom um, their priesthood involved church work. They they equated uh, priesthood priestly work with church work. So serve on this committee, serve on that committee, do this at church, do that at church. Yes. And and he and and he would actually, as a pastor, take aside some of these people who are literally living at church, and and he would say, you need to be in the world. You need to be. Uh, with your family. You need to be with your neighbors. You need to break bread with the people in your community. Uh, you need to be praying with others and, and serving others. We don't need you here so much. You know this, this is where you learn. This is where you get energized. This is where God blesses you. Now then you go out and you be a priest. And
0: This is, <laughs> this is why it's so vital that I go to tiki bars all the time, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: as often as possible.
2: Yeah, yeah you, well, done. You're... well done. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's
0: my service.
1: Thank you for that sacrifice.
2: <laughs> Do you ever ever pray with anybody in a tiki bar?
0: Um, no, but I have shared the gospel many times you... and invited people to church.
2: You know, I had a I had a, 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 a I had a great vicarage supervisor, and he had a he had a really colorful wife. She was kind of like the Tammy Faye Baker of Lutheranism, nice in so many ways. But but one thing I, I I thought was weird and admirable at the same time was when she encountered somebody, say in the grocery store parking lot, and they looked distressed. She would no hesitation. She'd come up to them. What's troubling you? And 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 they would tell her because she was that vulnerable, and, and and she would say, I'd like to pray for you, and there she is, in the middle of the parking lot, clogging up traffic, hands laid on the person, and she's praying for this person, I'm thinking, you know, as a Lutheran, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm would that
0: I'm, I'm, we're more like that?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm a real stuck-in-the-mud Lutheran, you know, and, and I'm thinking, oh, that's weird, you know, and then I'm thinking, that's so cool, that's so cool. I will
1: tell you, I'm not on the far end of that, but as you know, you know, I kind of have a gift of tears. I will tend to be emotional when I'm moved by the Spirit and when I'm speaking. And if I see someone suffering out in public, if I can see someone who's clearly in pain, I, I cannot not go up to them and check on them and see how they're doing and offer to pray for them and ask their name. And so um, I, I'm not always running around doing that, but if I see pain god takes takes me to that person and and we pray and it's not even just pain i had a very unusual thing happen about a month ago when i travel i was saying now oh, i'll be going to speak that's what i'm going to do but three quarters of the, of the blessings are in these little, little moments that are going to happen with people that i have no idea that they've been kind of prepared beforehand and i stayed at someone's house who is a kind of a distant family member she's uh, very wealthy Uh, she's someone who, you know, very delightful spirit, but I've never really connected with her as having any spiritual grounding or any religious grounding. And I was staying at her house for a night. And as soon as I arrived at dinner, I thought we were just going to have light casual talk. And she just started telling me that she's realized she's was never raised in any religion. She was never taught anything. She doesn't understand why she wasn't taught anything. And she feels that God has sent me to her now to help her. And we spent all night talking and me trying to give her some resources and I walked the neighborhood. I found a service that was down the street that might be a good entry point. And then when I went to leave, I mean, I wasn't even there 24 hours. I was like, I want to pray for you. And she just jumped up like a six-year-old girl trying to be like, okay, how do I do it? Where do I stand? What do I do? You know, I was like, here, just give me your hands. And we (laughs) prayed. And it's like those little moments. Now we'll follow up on that. You know, I've checked on her a few times, but those things are happening all the time and it's just that little thing like you talked about the people in the hospital and it won't always just be prayer when I was in the hospital with my daughter and that's in the book baptism by fire there was this beautiful young Latino uh, janitor and he was in the early morning shift and he would come around at like 5 a.m. room to room and that's at that point where you know you haven't had any sleep you've been up all night with your kid there's no all you want is coffee and you can't leave the room and So I was just like, oh, do you mind? Can I just run, get a cup of coffee? And he would stay with her and he would put the little Cheerios out on the tray and he would come up with little funny songs in Spanish with the Cheerios and she would just be so delighted and thrilled and just take a little bit of the weight off of trying to entertain a sick young child in a Hmm. hospital room for 24 hours a day. And it was such a gift, such a gift.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, covert operations. Now, now this is going to get me in trouble with my um with my crowd. But I'm already in trouble with my crowd, so it's okay. <laughs> And it's, this is None one, of us like you. I know. I, I, very few friends left, very few. Uh, but but um, this is one reason why I don't, as a rule, and this has been a change over the years, but I don't, as a rule, uh, wear my collar or things out in the world unless I'm doing specific pastor business out in the world. As we speak today, I'm just wearing casual clothes. And it's not that I'm ashamed of my office, but I'm not pastor to the world. I'm I'm pastor to a congregation that's called me to be their pastor, and I'm pastor to the people who have agreed to be under my pastoral care. There's a mutual compact there. I am a priest in the world. I'm priest to my neighbors. I'm priest to my community. I'm priest to the random people in the grocery store parking lot. But it's much like that that nurse, that believing nurse in the hospital, I'm, I'm, I'm covert operations. You don't see it coming. And you probably shouldn't see it coming. And That's and so, right. so one reason I don't wear the professional garb is I don't want people to think that this is a professional thing. Uh, me being a pastor is a professional thing. I get paid to do this. This is a real great privilege and it's a wonderful thing. But being a Christian is not a professional thing. It's, it's a reborn of water and spirit thing. It's an identity. It's a dignity. I have a priesthood because I'm baptized, not because I went to the seminary. And, and that's, that's, the, that's what I want to be seen in the world. In fact, I like when people are surprised. Whoa, 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 you're a Christian. That was the experience I had when I was a scientist. You know, I'm there in the lab bench, we're all working, and most people in science these days are agnostics or unbelievers. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, you go to church? You know, what's that about? Whoa, you believe in Christ? How can you do that? And there's this, this sudden realization that there, there's, you know, the guy across from the bench uh, is bringing a little bit something different to the game. And yeah. when, when one of my coworkers uh, developed a brain tumor and died at the age of 34, It was God's secret agent, his covert operations that sprung into action once again. And all of a sudden you discover, you know, in this chemical company, there are a lot of Christians around here.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And they, they came and it was really an amazing and beautiful thing because it was those priests to Christ that God had scattered of all different denominations, you know, but we all came together and we did our priestly service to our friend and, and... Uh, all the atheists and the agnostics had nothing to say because they 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 had nothing to bring to that death game, nothing, mm. and we did, <laughs> and they were in yep. awe. They were just in awe of this, and it was it was, it was a very cool experience. And I kind of missed that because now being a paid professional, I mostly hang out with Christian people. <laughs>
1: Well, and I think what you just said is another challenge to the priesthood of all believers in this institutional discussion. Because you just said there, a bunch of people, they were all different denominations, but they were able to come together as one because they were in Christ. And in that moment, all that mattered was being in Christ, that they could bestow blessings in that situation. The priesthood of all believers is a big in Christ tent. It is bigger. It is, you know, global. You can use the term cosmic. You can use whatever term you want to use, but it's not... Um, limited to one little realm of the christian mosaic and so there is something about that that is also a little bit of a rub against the institutional church
2: you know yeah it's interesting you said that i was just glancing down at the concluding uh thing from the ctcr document that i referenced which is really quite good i'm i'm I've been very, very uh, pleased with some of the stuff that the our, our CT has come up with recently. This is a very good. They spent good
1: eleven years on it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know, and, and I used to feel bad when I was a couple of days late on my term papers. Okay, you know, eleven years. But this first, hey, I, I, you know, these are some of the same profs that gave us
0: a hard time for turning in a paper I know, but fifteen there, minutes there's late. There's no it's,
2: deadline on these things. That's we need to problem. give them one.
0: It it takes them eight years just to take up the topic. But here's here's the
2: first concluding statement, and it's exactly what Heather said. The royal priesthood is a biblical way to identify, teach, and confess the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is to say, the royal priesthood of believers from every tribe and language and people and nation whom God has made a kingdom and priests working in them faith in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, this is the una sancta. This is, this is the, the body of Christ that is all believers joined together as one through faith in Christ. It's, it's the faith alone one, you know? And, and so this, this transcends institution. And it transcends any boundaries that we may have or any differences that we may have. And it's a marvel to see every once in a while when you see that come together. Uh, when you see, you know, you've been working with all these people and on a given Sunday, they all retreat to their respective churches. But all of a sudden something happens in the field. You know, one of our coworkers is stricken ill and the priests spring into action and that that is just, that's an amazing, amazing thing. And you realize, you know, why does God have a church? For the same reason that he had an Israel in the Old Testament, to make the name of the Lord great among the nations.
0: I think, uh, you, you know, as we're talking about all of this, I'm thinking about the uh, rather wound tight Lutheran pastor that's listening right
2: now. Uh, you know your name, because I don't. Uh, but anyway... Um, <laughs> there are, are you what? What there are pastors who are wound tight, really? Craig, yeah. come on. Well,
0: you know, and the question arises. Okay, fine. You know, maybe I haven't thought about this a whole lot. So, what's the difference between Word and Sacrament ministry and this and this priesthood that you guys are talking about? How, how do you define the difference? What's the difference there?
1: Oh, I'm not going to touch that one. Go ahead, Bill. Oh, I was <laughs> I was about to say go, Heather. <laughs>
2: But we said we said the magic word vocation. Right. Um, and and, and I, I hinted at it that that we do it for a group of people who call us to do it for them in order that they might do it for others. Now this is not to say that you're going out and having Lord's Suppers at your kitchen table. That that, that wouldn't that wouldn't be quite the spirit of the Lord's Supper. But it does it does mean that you you know, when you depart in the under the name and the blessing of the Lord you are going out into uh your priesthood i i, I think i i wish that <laughs> priests wear robes and one of the problems with the royal priesthood of, of christ is that the robes are are not visible you know we're, we're robed with the righteousness of christ um maybe it'd be nice if we all wore, wore robes but then we'd look like like buddhist monks and it'd be weird and 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 then nobody would would like they'd avoid us and so that yes, that doesn't that work true. So our robes are different. We're robed with Christ's righteousness. But I really think that that Christians, when they leave divine service, when they have heard the word and received the body and blood of Christ and are dismissed with the Lord's blessing, should have a sense of being robed.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you just said that. Okay, this is what I want to tell you.
2: Okay, we got we got Heather in the action now. Go, nice. Heather!
1: <laughs> well... You know, I've been involved in replanting this church in the inner city of L.A. And I say, well, we have a whole team. It's kind of a priesthood of all believers church because we don't have a full-time pastor. We have a pastor who oversees us, a Lutheran pastor who is a member and oversees the ministry. And when we started there, I was so convicted about the importance of this. And I'd really been thinking a lot about, well, you know, how do you go about resurrecting this notion so it becomes part of people's daily lives? You know, yeah, you could just do a little study on it and people would go for six weeks and then they'd forget everything you said. But so I I said, you know, let's make it our benediction. And so at Hope LA, our benediction every week is you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Knowing this and believing this, may you go in peace to love and serve him with boldness and great joy. And we've been saying that for three and a half years. Everyone has it and we take turns being the one to, to say it so that everyone has that role and that voice and it becomes part of our Identity. We are clear on it. We get it.
2: You know, you just made me think of something when you said that. Is is, and that's that's of course the the doctrinae. That's the that's the seed verse for the priesthood of believers, is First Peter, which is baptismal, because he's reminding them of who they are in baptism. You know, you go back to the beginning of the chapter. They've they have been washed. They've been fed. Uh, they they are like Israel coming through the Red Sea. But, you know, sometimes you see churches that have the, at the door, you are now entering the mission field. And and I thought, how much better would it be to have that verse as the verse that you see when you go through the church door, or maybe it's in the floor. You know, I get some churches at the baptismal font, just at the church door, have that in the, on, you know, mosaic into the floor of the church so that your identity, you're clear about who you are when you get back into your car or when you walk out on the sidewalk or, you know, when you, when you leave the church, you leave as, as a priest to God and you've got a whole world of priesthood open to you.
1: Yeah. Rather than,
2: rather than saying, okay, I did my, I did my, my Christian thing. Okay. Put in my hour. Sweet hour of prayer, and now it's back to whatever I do. Whatever you do out in the world, you're doing as a priest to God. You have this identity, this dignity, this this thing. I, and it's got to change the way we look at the people around us and the way we look at our work, too. It's got to change somehow.
1: Well, what you the, know that I'm all about the cross of Christ, and so I don't need to preface with this, but I'm just going to make it clear. Maybe instead of having crosses dangling from our rearview mirrors, we should have little crowns. That'll remind us what we're doing as we're driving around.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's like a double thing. There's a reminder of what Jesus has done for you, and then it's a reminder of who you are in Christ. You know, you've got this identity that you didn't have before, <laughs> right. and and that priestly identity. I think if people, I know, you know, when I do wear my collar, I behave differently because.
1: Well, uh, have you ever read Barbara Brown Taylor? Any of her work? She's just a brilliant no. writer, and she wrote a no, book no, called no. "Leaving Church." She had become. a I can't remember if it was Anglican or Episcopal, but she became a, a, a minister, and then she, which was her life's work and her life's dream, and she did it, and then she ended up leaving the church and just becoming a, a teacher and a scholar um, because of that. But the, one of the observations that she made is that when you wear the collar out, it puts a wall between you and other people. It's just what you're you're saying. She oh, said yeah. You're no longer a person. You can't interact with people in a normal way. They don't feel comfortable with you. They start behaving differently or saying things in a different way, and it becomes an obstacle to good human relations.
2: Totally. I agree
0: I, I, and I disagree all at the same time on that in that, you know, there, there have been times like when I worked at Ground Zero. The The caller said, you can talk to this guy. You, you have yeah. God questions right now. Yes. The world's been attacked. It's turned upside down. The caller says, here's someone who cares and, and you can talk to and, and then of course there are the times where you walk into the bar and you're wearing your collar and people will say are you supposed to be in here yeah it might and, might actually be uh, you know, there are problems there you know
2: ground zero nine <laughs> eleven that's an interest that's a really interesting example and again you probably saw a bunch of examples of the priesthood of believers in action oh yes but, yes but you know think I think about it and you lived close I just watched it on TV but at the time of, like, tremendous upheaval like that, uniform means everything. Right. That because some people don't, you know, there are people who don't belong there. What are you doing here? Get out of here. But if you've got the fireman's uniform, the policeman's uniform, emergency worker's uniform... Uh, the uniform of, of a pastor, you, you know, that says I'm here for a purpose. And I think when there's upheaval and disorder like that, that brings order. I think that's a good use of a good use of the uniform. Right. right. Thank and, you and... for
1: bringing that up. Certainly in any time of crisis, that is the go-to. And you can be surrounded by a room of people who are just, you know, as agnostic as they come. But if someone's dying and if someone walks in with a collar, like that person's got the floor, you know?
2: Absolutely. That's, that's why I wear it in the hospital, you know? Been it's,
0: commandeered many times, Father. Usually, will you come pray over here also? Right,
2: right. You but know. but but I think when one is functioning as priest, there's something there's something subversive. God is a subversive. You know, he doesn't he doesn't come in full blast. He comes. He he enters. He sneaks in through Bethlehem, <laughs> by way of a virgin mother. He's a subversive, and so this priesthood of believers thing is a very subversive thing because you don't see it coming. Uh, until it's too late. You, you are now in the presence of a royal priest of Christ, and, and you couldn't duck it because you didn't see it coming. I, I love all that.
1: Yeah, we, that's we only, great.
2: We only have a couple of minutes left, Heather, but I, I, since you have two pastors on the line here, and you've been talking to pastors about this priesthood of believers, um, what would you like us to know, or what can we do? Uh, in our role as pastors in the church, to um, recover this 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 doctrine to to get it get it into play more, to have people identify themselves as priests more. what what can we do?
1: Well, I would say two things. Um, one, I hear pastors, when I do that benediction, I always do that benediction at the end of the talk, whoever I'm talking with, and they're all like, oh, I should try that. But then I'm sure they never do because they get caught up in whatever they're doing and they haven't learned it or whatever. I would really try using that benediction for a year and see what happens, see if people start to understand and know it. But more than that, I would, would allow yourself the freedom and the excitement of saying, wow, what might I discover about the lives of my people and how God's calling them to be used outside and how can I empower them so that they can have some of these life-giving experiences of being used as a priest out in the world. And some of them may just need a little nudge, a little permission, a little encouragement to even know that this thing exists and they can do it. And I, I believe that that's hard for some pastors, a certain, you know, I don't know which group it is or what have you, but I do know that just reading the CTCR document, and I know one of the guys who's on the group, and he's so thoughtful, he's actually a scientist, he's not a, he's not a pastor, and such a bright guy. And he's come to all my talks, and he's always sending me notes, and we're going back and forth about this. Um, and I think based on the introduction to the document and the way the document is written, one of the reasons it took them so long was because they're very concerned about people in the office of the public ministry feeling as if somehow their role is being minimized, or not as important, or they're not going to be as clear about where their solid ground is. And they wanted to be very sensitive to that. And so I'm sensitive to that. Because, you know, it's it's like the the Jewish leaders all of a sudden be saying, yeah, we're not going to do that law thing anymore. It's just grace. We're all good. Moving on. You know, it feels like a big loss. It kind of, I could see where it would feel like loss to some of them, loss of dignity or importance, you know. Um, But I think that the joy and the fullness that would come as a pastor of knowing that Someone's going to come to tell you about the way they prayed with someone at a hospital or the cards they wrote or the ministry they're doing sitting on the bleachers of their kids' soccer game while, you know, parents are losing their heads and, you know, blood's coming out of their ears because they're so worked up and trying to be the voice of reason in the middle of a, you know, chaotic, <laughs> disproportionate view of kids' sports. Um, I think that that blessing and that gift that's going to come back to pastors again and again is going to make you go, oh, Wow. So this is our life together in the ministry. This is what it means that we all get to be priests together in the ministry. Yes, I get to be the man who stands in the pulpit and preaches the word and and blesses the sacraments, and I do that ministry, and that's a special job. But every one of these people also has a special job, and I want to lift that up, and I want to see the life of the Church come back through that process.
0: I think what I'm hearing you say, Heather, and we talked a little bit about inhaling and exhaling, and the pastors get to exhale what they have received in the gospel, and the people get to inhale it and go out into the world and exhale it again.
1: Ooh, that's nice. Well, that's, you know, as I have received, so I pass on to you.
2: Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and and he, he from the Lord, too. So that, 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 that's a good, that's a good el- allusion. I, I like the word equipping. I used to be trained to, um, to despise that word. And and uh, again, I think I think you're right. I think you touched on on a sensitivity, Heather, that that there's a fear that um, a the laity won't do it right, um, you know, because we have the expertise, we, we we can parse all the the little fine points of doctrine, um, or b that we will no longer be necessary if everybody was doing these things, and and I think. Uh, I think we need to redirect our energies. We spend a lot of energy uh, teaching people all the fine points of doctrine and imparting a lot of information, which is, which is good. It's helpful. But it, it needs to be directed in a way that says, and this is how you pray, and this, and, and this, is, this is how you teach your family, your neighbor, uh, and this is how you bless, so that we're, we're not only teaching, but we're modeling and, you know oh, oh go
1: ahead I'm sorry
2: and so equipping and empowering I know those are buzzwords today and people use them all over the place but I think there's some validity to them that people need to feel that uh, they have the church's permission the pastor's permission God's permission to be priests of God in the world and I'm not sure that they always do
1: hmm. and one part of this equipping piece you know when you're talking about all the good teaching that you'll do in a sermon and yes that's true but you know Leanne and I both spent 20 years in Lutheran churches and went to Bible study and prayed and did everything to try and learn and grow. And I'm telling you, when we showed up at Concordia, we didn't know three quarters of what was considered just basic Lutheranism, never heard of any of it. And most of the stuff that was, you know, we were at a, a strong Lutheran church with good Bible studies and a good, good preaching and all that. And I think what the part of the piece is, is pastors don't teach systematic thinking to their people. And so you may be teaching the truth of a certain verse, or you may be, you actually don't teach doctrine in a sermon. You are using doctrine to form your law gospel template, and it's there for you. But they are not picking up on that. We're not picking up on that in the pews. So I think when we are intentional to teach people how these dots connect, to unpack the words in the fullness, and that's why we wrote Loaded Words. It's like here, these are 12 words that are basic words, and I guarantee you that 90% of the people in the pews don't really understand what they mean theologically, how they're used, how they apply to everything else. And what we wanted them to come away, there's little bullet points at the end of each chapter, like a fortune cookie strip, come away with one concept. So when you hear the word repent, instead of picturing the guy standing in front of the mall with a giant signboard saying, repent or go to hell, which isn't biblical and is not even in a line anywhere in Scripture, you instead have like, oh, repent means an open invitation to be forgiven by God. Mm.
2: That, yes. that's,
1: I'd like to know that. <laughs> that, that would be helpful.
2: That's a, that's a nice, you know, it's not just simply turning away from sin. It's turning toward forgiveness. You know, here, this is a better thing to be looking at. I, I like that a lot. We are we're out of time. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, go to Heather's website, heatherchoatdavis.com, and you can you can actually I think you can actually buy books off your website, can't you? Well,
1: yeah, they'll link you straight to Amazon. They're all on there. There you
2: go. Okay, so So, hardbacks, so look at her books. Check out the CTCR document on the Royal Priesthood of the Christians. Um, you can just Google that. I don't have the address of that in front of me, but that is worthwhile reading. And uh, we're hoping that this conversation at least uh, kind of picks up. It's kind of like the short ending of Mark, you know? I mean, it just kind of ends. <laughs> it ends abruptly, but but there's more, you know? And so so we're hoping that at least this conversation is part of the more. And most importantly to Craig and me, you can uh, like us on Facebook because Craig has this deep need to be liked. I just want to be loved. He does. And, and uh, you can... Uh, visit the full archive that body of work now up to 349 episodes of the GW at godwhispers.org you can email us with your questions your comments and your threats uh, at uh, godwhispers at com. and of course uh, listen to our podcast on iTunes uh, Google Play or any of those podcast feeds where we are broadcast so Craig I hope you're feeling better Getting there. Till next time. We'll see you in the lounge.
1: Thank you. Bye.